So, guys, we are dealing with worship this entire month, and so we've been looking at worship from this, this uh, aspect of fulfilling a great commandment. The great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. That, that, is, that is something that we often, um, we say it all the time, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, right? So we've talked about our hearts, we talked about our bodies, we talked about our mind. Today we're going to talk about our soul. And, and the thing that I really want to um, drive home today is our soul is an undivided worshiper, okay? Undivided worshiper. So most of us sitting in here probably have not spent a lot of time thinking about our soul, have we? Right? You guys following me? Like, there's maybe many of us sitting in here would, if I gave you a, a, a sheet of paper and said, I want you to represent Webster and define a soul, define what it is, how many of you would say, man, I absolutely know how to define a soul? Anybody here feel real confident in defining a soul? One one or two? Okay. So that means that this is probably a pretty important one, isn't it? If we say, I don't know that I feel super comfortable defining a soul, what is my soul? And yet, it's a part of what we're supposed to worship with all of our Soul. How can I worship with all of my soul if I don't even know what my soul is? Come on, right? So we're here, everybody. This is like, a, hey, you know what? This is one of the sermons that it's not like it's for most everybody. Today is for everyone. Pretty awesome, right? We're going to learn something today. All right. So um, one of the things I will tell you is if you're really, if, if this sermon really sparks something in you, right? And you're like, man, I really want to know more. There is a book that I would in, uh, encourage you. It's called uh, by John Ortberg, Soul Keeping. Um, my, my brother, Big Mike over there, he handed this book to me and he says, man, this book's awesome, amazing. I read it and it's awesome, amazing. I've had Pastor uh, Paul read it as well. It is a great book that really talks about it and, it, and I've used a lot of stuff from it, so I'm not even going to lie to you. Um, all of us pastors, we, um, we take other pastors' stuff all the time, we rip it and reseal it, you know, you know, so there's a lot of things that I've learned from this book that those guys will be like, yeah, I know where that came from, and that's okay, because um, I don't want to have to re, re, redefine or recreate the will that's already here, so he has some really good things, and I want to share those with you today, but if I'm going to worship God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, we know our heart, we know our mind, we know our body, but a lot of times we don't know how to worship God with all of our soul okay so here's a diagram to write off out of the gate so in the center here our bullseye ring the very center ring it is going to be what we talk about as our will the will so everyone has a will you all have a will and that will is what makes decisions it's the part of you that god when he created you he gave you free there we go, all right? So God gave you free will. You can make your own choices, right? I like it when, when people, like, they get older and they're like, I'm an adult, I can do whatever I want. Yes, that's your will, you have free will. You know, so you have free will, you can make decide decisions. And here's the thing is your will is the capacity to choose or make decisions, but here's the deal that you need to know, it's very limited. Your will is very limited. Your, your will is limited to making choices and decisions, but here's what it's not good at. Your will is not good at overcoming addictions. Has any of you ever uh, struggled with an addiction, even if it was like a food addiction or a sugar addiction, right? All right, when you said, 
I'm just not going to ever do that again. How did that work out for you? You, you, you? So I'm wanting you to understand your willpower, just like the straight up willpower, I'm not doing it again, is not really designed to overcome your addiction. We're going to talk about how to do that later, but not your will. Your will is not, that's not what that's really good at. So the heart, the next part of it is the heart. Uh, your heart is your seat of emotions, all right? This is where you have your feelings. Whew. And if you are a woman, you have an extra big heart. I love you guys. Like, your husband loves you for how big your heart is, right? I mean, like, wow, honey, your heart is super big right now, you know? Uh, so, so here's the thing. But it's also where our heart is also where your passions come from. You're passionate about something. Men, you have a bigger heart than what you think. Your wife may think that you have no heart at all, but you've got something deep down inside there. It may look like the one off of uh, um, the Grinch. Thank you. Yeah, the little, 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 little tiny sucker in there in green, you know, but, but everybody's passionate about something. We, we had a Super Bowl party here this last, and that was a lot of fun, and we had some passionate Chiefs fans. Woo! All right, okay, sorry. That's not for the sermon. So, but... We're, we get passionate, we get a passionate about that, right? We're passionate. I'm passionate about hunting, I'm passionate about fishing, not as much as hunting, but I really am passionate about, and I'm passionate about my chiefs, I'm passionate about, but here's the deal, is I want to be most passionate about God. You get what I'm saying? But every one of you is passionate. What's the thing that you could talk about for hours, that's where your heart is, okay? So we have our will, we have our heart, and now let's talk about our mind, your mind is the seat of where you logically process stuff. It's where you think about it, you, you make deductions, you analyze, you logically make decisions, right? So this is why women and men are so different. Women are, are their, their way of, they, their heart is so big and they have such a passion for everything. And the man is typically where he's, has not, he, he doesn't make decisions that are tied to very many emotions. He just makes a decision. And then you're like, you're heartless, right? You're laughing because some of you are like, yeah, I, that's exactly what I think. So, so here's the thing. So we have our mind. So we have our will, our heart, our mind. But here's what's really cool, okay? So your heart and your mind often try to work together more than you know. They like to gang up on the will, The will says, uh, we need to do this. And then your heart says, we're, we're, we're eating a meal and maybe we, 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 we had this great meal and, the, and, your, and your heart's like, oh, that dessert looks pretty good. The will saying, listen, don't eat that cake. But your heart's going, I want the cake. <laughs> then your heart starts working with the mind. Listen, we'll go home and run. The mind's like, well, if we run three and a half miles at the pace of seven miles an hour, we could work off the, the cake. Oh, theoretically, we can do that, right? The heart's like, yeah, we'll do that if we have the heart to run after this. But, we'll, we, you know, like, we'll, 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 we'll work at this. And the will's like, no. And then the heart and the mind say, we, we've, we're, this is what we're, then the last part of this, not the last part, but the next part's our body. The body's like, hmm. That's all the physical parts of it. My tongue starts, my mouth starts watering like a <laughs> cake, you know. 
And then the kids start joining in. They're not helping me. And the kids are sitting around the table like, God is, or dad is great. He gives me chocolate cake. And then it's like, oh, that's got a good beat to it, you know? And it's like, chocolate cake for everyone. And then, then the will's like, you know, like, why do we do that, right? So, so the thing is, is that your body is kind of like the, the action pad, uh, you know, the, 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 the pack for everything else. So your mind and will and heart can't do anything without the body. The body is what's carrying it all out. There is no action without the body, but your heart and your mind and your will are telling the body what to do. But the body gets involved. Like cake doesn't do that for me, but somebody says steak, and I'm like, did you say steak? Like, steak is like a staple of my, my menu. Isn't that right, Barbara? Steak is a staple of my menu. It's like a staple thing right there. All right, so now we get to the last part of this, and that's the soul. The soul is this outer ring, and, and, and we need to understand how the soul comes into play here. The soul is the part of you that has capacity to integrate all the parts. You following me? The soul is the integrating part. So it wants to integrate. That means it wants to pull everybody together. So the soul that you have wants to integrate all the parts into one single being. Do you hear me? It wants to integrate everything into one whole united being it wants the will and the heart and the mind and the body all to be good friends like can't we all get along that's your soul right come on mind come on heart let's do this you know and so your 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 soul is seeking to integrate it but it's not just seeking to integrate it it seeks to integrate my whole being under god so it's not just trying to integrate your body just to be this individual being. Your soul is the eternal part of you. And that eternal part of you is wanting all of you to be under its creator. How important is the soul? I think we probably need to talk about that for a minute. How important is this soul? Because we don't know it very well. We don't understand it very well. So what we often do is we kind of ignore the most important part of you. You hear me? I said it not on accident. The most important part of you is the most ignored part of you. Because we don't understand it, we don't seek to understand it, and therefore we ignore it. And therefore we find ourselves not very happy. So have you guys ever bought something? Let's, let's say, let's say uh, a tree stand. So let's say that your wife gave you permission to buy a brand new tree stand. Like you got permission and you like, you got the card and you're like, ooh, yeah. So I mean, like I'm going, Bass Pro, here we come. You know, I'm like, man, I, no, that one's not expensive enough. My wife said yes. So I'm not buying the cheap stuff today. I'm getting the, I want the one on the top shelf. You know, I want the one with all the bells and whistles. And I've got exactly, I bought, oh, that's the one I want. I got it in my nice little box. I bring it home. I take it out of the box. I'm petting it. It's so beautiful and wonderful. But yet, I'm still not happy. Have you ever noticed that maybe that you, you get what you wanted, right? You got what you wanted, but 
there was still something inside of you that wasn't happy. Has that happened to anybody? Maybe you bought your dream home and you're like, man, this home's gonna make me, if I could just have that house, you get that house and you're like, hmm, something's still missing. You, you, you get your dream car or truck, right? You got exactly the car, truck you wanted and yet you're like, man, it was cool for a month or two but man, I got the payments, you know? You met the person of your dreams, or you thought, now it's the person of your night. No, I'm just kidding. You know, you know so you, you, you married the person you wanted to marry. You had the children you thought you wanted, right? I mean, like, you know, and, but, but what I'm trying to say is that you have all these things in your life that's happened for you just the way you wanted, and you still find yourself unhappy, can anybody say, yeah, I kind of get that? Not maybe on the fullest scale, but at some point in your life, I got what I wanted and I still wasn't really happy. And a lot of times we still find ourselves, what I would say is, 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 is chasing after moments of happiness. And what I mean by that is this. Okay, so Barbara said the other day, she goes, I'm making lasagna. And I, I don't know what else she said after that, but I heard lasagna. And my heart was like, oh, I love lasagna. Anybody else like lasagna? By the way, because I have a whole bunch of people come to my house, I don't get it now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not going to kick that one. I'm going to leave it. Somebody might need that later. So, <laughs> so, but the thing is, is that, I mean, how often we, we, we get whatever we wanted, right? And then we look and we like, I'm still not happy. Because we keep chasing after moments of happiness rather than the very thing that makes us happy. If you're chasing after moments that make you happy, maybe you got to buy that thing on Amazon, or maybe you didn't even ask permission. I ask permission for everything. But maybe you just decide, I'm going to go shop, and I'm going to go do this, and I bought what I wanted, or I got permission to buy what I wanted, and then... It didn't really make you happy. And here's the thing is, it's not even about happiness. What it's really about is satisfaction. It doesn't satisfy you. Okay? You guys all follow me. Because I, wanna, I want you to understand how important. See, see, the word blessed in the Bible, a Greek word, makarios. And it means to be made happy by the extension of another. Guess who that is? That's God. You see, I cannot make myself happy. My house cannot make me happy. There's only one who can truly bless me. His name is God. Right? See, I start asking this question is why can these things not satisfy me? Why why can't they? Because these things can't satisfy your soul. That car can't satisfy your soul. The house can't satisfy your soul. Your wife can't satisfy your soul. Your husband cannot satisfy your soul. Having children cannot satisfy your soul because there's only one thing in this entire world that can satisfy your soul and that is the name Jesus. He's the only one. And we're chasing after all the things that don't satisfy us. 
you keep trying and you keep chasing and when you attempt when you keep attempting to satisfy your soul you can't and the reason you can't is because you're not God it's the number one rule in CR the first step in CR the first starting point to recovery in all recovery, the starting point is to realize I'm not God. And you keep trying to please yourself, and you keep pleasing yourself, finding that it doesn't please you. Because you're not good at pleasing yourself, because you weren't created to please yourself. Amen? Amen. <laughs> God created you to please Him, and when we please Him, it pleases us. It seems backwards, but I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it works. It works. So, I want to look at the scripture. I want to look at this biblically. So, I explained how this works. I explained how vitally important your soul is. All right, look at Matthew chapter 16. All right, then Jesus said to his disciples. Now, who's he speaking to? His disciples. Okay, he's speaking to his disciples and he's telling his disciples whoever wants to be my disciple so he's telling disciples if you really want to be my disciple this is what it's going to look like he's about to give each and every one of us a snap picture of what it means to be a disciple whoever is whoever so if any of you are one of those who Ever would decide. So if you would decide to be a disciple, I want to be a disciple. This is what whoever wants. See, it doesn't say whoever's chosen. Oh. Oh. <laughs> right? Whoever wants. So you can want to be a disciple. And Jesus says, here's how it's going to work. He didn't close the door on you. He says, whoever wants. You want to be a disciple, here's what it is. Whoever wants to be my disciple must. So this is not a, a suggestion, is it? Must. He must, number one, deny themselves. It ain't about you. If I want to be a disciple of Christ, it's all about Christ. Whoever wants to be my disciple will deny themselves. Number one, deny themselves. Number two, they will take up their cross. Guess what? A lot of people say, well, I want to get a, be a Christian so that I don't have to suffer anymore. <laughs> I don't know what book you're reading. It's not this one. Because in this book, it says, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus never promised that we wasn't going to have a hard time here. He never promised that there would be no sickness. He never promised that people that you love wouldn't die. He doesn't promise that you wouldn't struggle. He doesn't promise that you won't fall flat on your face. He doesn't promise that you won't lose everything. In fact, he actually says quite the opposite. In this world, you're going to have trouble. In this world, there's going to be suffering. No one suffered more than Jesus. So he says... Whoever wants to be my disciple, one, they're going to deny themselves. They're going to secondly take up their cross. There's going to be suffering involved. I'm going to take up whatever cross, whatever my suffering is to bear, I'm going to bear it and I'm going to carry it. Part of what Barbara's and my wife and I's cross was to, that we would have to watch our only oldest son die. That was our cross. That was a part of our cross 
to bear. And I don't blame God for the cross that I bear. Now, if anyone ever struggles with a sick child, I understand exactly what they're going through. I know how hard it hurts when somebody says, I lost somebody I loved. And I'm like, hey, hold on, hold on, sister or brother. You didn't lose nothing. We know exactly where they are. To be lost means you don't know where they are. We know exactly where they are. And there's going to be a reunion that we're going to have. So let's think about that. So, so we have this cross to bear, but then he also then says, follow me. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means literally, Jesus, whatever you're doing, I want to be a good student imitates their teacher. When he loved his enemies, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to love my enemies. Those who are persecuting me. He prayed for the people who persecuted him. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So what am I supposed to do? The same thing. I am here to follow the ways of Jesus. That's what I'm doing as a student of Jesus. I'm wanting to be like, he even says in the Gospels, uh, it is enough for a student to want to be like their teacher. That's what I'm doing, following him. Then he goes, forever, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. You want to you be saved? First step to salvation is losing your life. What that means is surrendering my life. It's no longer mine. I'm giving it to God. God, I give it to you. I'm surrendering my life. That's, that's me losing my life. God, it's yours. Whatever. You want me to suffer, I'll carry the cross. You want me to have, have a big cross or a little cross, a, a pointed cross? Well, I'll, I'll drag them all. You want me to have two cross? I'll carry it. Because I'm yours. I'm giving. So whoever, I love this, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. The moment I surrender my life, I get life. Isn't that amazing? So now let's check it out. He's not done. Then he goes like this. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? yet forfeit their soul. See, why I told you that the soul is, why the soul is so important and we ignore it all the time is this. We chase after the world. We want to get the career that we want to get. We want to get the money that we want to get. We want to get the house that we want. What good is it if you get everything in this entire world has to offer? Everything that you ever wanted in this world was given to you. He still says, you can have the entire world and still not be happy. Have we figured that out? You could literally, I mean, I'm literally, you could be someone who literally has the whole world and still not be happy. What good does it do you to have all the money you've ever wanted, but you throw out your soul to get it? What good is it for you to have your dream home, but your soul doesn't enjoy it? What good is it for you to be married to the person you've always wanted to be married with, but your soul is gone? What I'm wanting you to understand is that the soul is so much more important than you think. And then he even goes on to say, or what can anyone give in exchange? You couldn't give all the world has. If the world says, here, I give you everything, and you take everything, that's still not enough to buy one soul. That's the worth, the value of a soul. Your soul, hear me, your soul is priceless. 
A lot of times when, when us elders get together and we start talking about sometimes how much things cost, and then one person, you know, it's like, well, we spent all this money, but one person, it was worth it. The moment you say, but one person, it, okay, I don't care. Yeah, that was worth it. Because what's the value of one soul? There isn't a, you can't put a vow because it's the part of you that's eternal. It's the only part of you that's sitting in this room that's eternal. Everything else goes away. Your heart is going to be gone. Your mind is going to be gone. Your body is going to be gone. Your will is going to be, and the only thing that's left is going to be your soul. The soul. Man, how valuable it is. And yet we throw it away so easily chasing after the world. But I want to tell you something that's really cool. So, have you ever, I think it's kind of neat how God loves you so much. Have you ever thought about how much God loves you? Like, God loves you so much. And here's what's so cool about his love for you. That he knew how dumb we would be. I didn't say you because I put, I didn't want to say how dumb you are because that would really sound bad. So, how dumb we are. I'll just throw myself right, we're all dumb, right? I mean, God knew how extremely stubborn, well, that's a better word. We, We like that word a lot better than the other word how stubborn we are. He knew how much we would chase after the world because of what the world is offering us. God put something inside of you. He put something inside of you to make sure that when you were chasing after the world, you still wouldn't have the satisfaction of it. That you would chase after all these things and you would start looking at them and you're like, oh, this really didn't make me happy. That didn't make me happy. I chased down this road and I thought that would make me happy. I thought this would make me happy. I thought this. And then you start looking at all the things that you've tried and you never found a happiness in it. And God's like, yep, 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 yep. Because what he did is he put a soul in you. That's how much God loves you is he put a soul that would only yearn for him. Your soul only desires him so you can chase after everything else and your soul will not be satisfied because it only desires God. That's what makes worship so powerful is when your soul desires God. I just think, God, how amazing that you would put something in us to automatically just yearn for him. No matter how far you run away from God, there's still a piece of you wanting to run back to God. You may have your, your will, your heart, your mind, and your body all convinced to go down the devil's road. But I can guarantee you, your soul's screaming to go back. There's a, something that God placed in you because of his amazing love for you that would never stop crying for God. Woo! Is that not an amazing love? Is that not amazing grace? No matter how hard you run, how far you run, there's still something inside of you that God placed in you that aches for him. That draws us back. It's, it's, it's what's inside of us that when we get down that road and we realize we've tried everything and none of it worked, that we just finally give in to the soul screaming and we're like, fine, fine. And we turn around and we're like, oh, this is what I wanted all along. <laughs> that God has everything that your heart wants, everything that your mind wants, and he has everything that your body desires. Your soul was right. But we got a problem. There's always a spiritual battle. When we deal with spiritual battle, it's the spiritual battle. We, we, we try to focus on the, the, the spiritual battle is like a bodily thing. It's not. It's a spiritual thing. And the war is actually against your soul. 
See, the soul seeks to integrate, while sin disintegrates. So the sin is trying to do the opposite of what your soul is seeking to do. So the sin disintegrates the very thing the soul is seeking to integrate. So sin is trying to appeal to your heart, to your will, to your mind, and to your body. Sin seeks to divide the will, the heart, the mind, the body away from God. That's what sin seeks to do. So let's look at this in the scripture. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Right? Did you guys read that? Abstain. That means stay away from. Get away from it. Throw it out. To abstain from sinful desires which war against what? Your soul. The, the, the sinful desires, the things that are inside of you that are desiring to do what's against God's word, it is warring against your soul. That's what sin does. Sin is at war against the eternal part of you, your soul. And the problem that we have is we don't know very much about our soul. Therefore, we're not very good at spiritual battle. Right? I mean, perfect timing. <laughs> right? Like, well, God, thank you for not letting me hit snooze again. You know, so glad that I got up, went to church even if I didn't want to. And if you missed it, so glad that I'm tuning in on live, right? Like, I'm so glad that I'm still there. So, our soul is at war with our sinful desires. Sin's ability to disintegrate our soul is truly sad but also truly effective. Sin is doing a better job than what we want to admit. And I hope I don't lose you on this. I hope that you're listening. See, there's a lot of studies done, and some of these studies talked about how Christians, people who are Christians, active in church, are willing to lie a little, cheat a little, steal a little, be a little deceitful if it will help them get a personal gain without hurting others or avoid pain. Christians are willing to lie a little, cheat a little, steal a little, and be a little deceitful as long as it doesn't hurt anybody and I can get ahead or I can just avoid pain altogether. Raise your hand if we're still going to be friends after I say this next statement. Okay, some of you did not raise your hands, and I hope that you will decide to be my friend anyways. Many of us are willing to cheat on our taxes, to get ahead, to fudge some numbers, to add some miles. It doesn't hurt anybody. And it's helping us. Who cares about the government? They're taking advantage of us anymore. We're paying taxes on everything. It 
So then at what point do we start deciding what lies okay and what lies not okay? At what point in our life do we start deciding what is good and what is good enough to God? When did we become God and decide what lying is okay and what lying is not? When did we become that? When did we do that? And what I'm wanting you to understand is that that's what the soul, or that's what sin does to your soul. It begins to try to help you figure out how you can be both a good man and do a bad thing. And that's all through cognitive flexibility. There's actually a medical term for it. Cognitive flexibility is the ability to adjust its activity, the mental activity and content, and switch between rules. I can switch between the rules that I like and switch between the corresponding um, behavioral responses so I can use my mind and get flexible. And here's what I'm going to get somewhere with this. We're going to use this cognitive flexibility uh, so that I can get away with certain things while focusing on other things. Let me tell you what flexible con- uh, cognitive flexibility is. It's a fancy word for self-justification. <laughs> it's just another word I can use to make my sin sound better. Make me feel better about myself when I'm messing up a little. <laughs> Sin tries to convince my mind that I can lie a little, cheat a little, steal a little, and still be overall a good person. Now, you know what we're all doing right now? We're all tempted to use some cognitive flexibility right now. Come on. Come on, right now. We're somewhere like, well, yeah, but I'm not as bad as. I think that, that's, I think that the, 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 the worst thing happening... I think what's happening in our churches today, I'll get to that, I'll get to that. So let me show you how this works. Let me use marriage as an example. I think marriage is a great example. Okay, now this isn't personal with me and my wife. I'm just going to use my marriage as an example. This actually came from the book. Okay, so in the book he gave this really long. I didn't want to read three pages, but he talked about his marriage. So let me boil it down to this. I love my wife. I want to be a I want to be good to my wife. I want to be a good husband. But my wife infuriates me. Some of you are laughing. You're like, amen. No, he's a jerk. That, that pastor's an idiot. I don't like him at all. You know, so, you know. Okay, but she infuriates me. So now my, there's, there's this battle in my mind. My mind is having to go to work here. I want to be a good husband and I want to hurt her. Maybe not physically, but with some words would, would be nice. Right? Come on. Right? Wives, you can do the same thing. Really, this would be a lot easier if we switched it around. But, but, I, but I, don't wanna, I, don't, I don't want any of you guys to get in trouble today. So we, we want to be good, but we also want to inflict pain with our words. But here's the problem. Biblically, it's incompatible. I can't be a good husband and be mean with my words. Can I? So I'm going to have to find a way to work around this. 
See, that's what sin is doing, is trying to figure out a way that you can bend the Word of God to make you feel better about yourself. See, the Bible actually says, in James 1.8, it says, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. You see, the moment that I'm trying to figure out how I can be good and do bad, I'm divided. There can't be unity between good and bad. Jesus says you'll know a tree by its fruit. It's either good or it's bad. A good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. You will know them by their... See? But sin is saying, hey, heart... You know, you're really passionate about this. I think that you need to let them have it. Yes, you're okay. Mind, listen, we can still be good and let them have it. That's what sin does. It's dividing your heart and your mind. It's dividing all of these things so that they're not con- congregated. They're not, they're not together. They're not united. A divided life is a wounded life. The soul keeps calling you to heal the wounds, Right? Your soul, there's something inside of you saying there's a lot of hurt inside of you and you keep hurting everybody else. Anybody? Come on, anybody? That you have a habit of hurting other people and guess what? Your soul is, is crying out to get some healing so that you won't, be going, and you won't continue to do that. The soul cannot function when the heart, mind, body are divided and sin divides that is why I'm going to tell you something that no one likes to hear. There are no such thing as little sins. No such thing as little sins. And I think that this is the thing in our churches that are hurting us the most. I think what's killing the church is us thinking that sin, some sin is not a big deal. Now, I am not trying on any platform to say that, that, that there aren't some big sins that have big consequences. You, you hear me, right? Some, you know, hey, if you gossip, you're not going to jail for murder. But I'm telling you this, gossip will go to, send you to hell just as quick as murder. It's in the Bible. Those who gossip cannot enter the, heaven, enter the kingdom of heaven. What we often do is like, yeah, but that's not really that big of a deal compared to what God is trying to say is, listen, when you, you, you think that there are these little sins that are okay and these little sins are destroying your soul, a little sin, because there is no little sins, but if you want to call it a little sin, it will destroy your soul just as fast as a big one. Because little sins go undetected or little sins get justified. Well, I'm not doing that, so I'm not that bad. That's cognitive flexibility. All sin is serious because of what it does for your soul. All of it is ultra serious. Every ounce of sin, I don't care how small you think it is, it'll destroy your soul. Leonard Ravenhill wrote a book, Why Revival Tarries, and one of his chapters in its book is Sin Begets Sin. What he means is this, is that once I begin to sin, or I, I'm okay with a certain sin, if you're okay with complaining about others, you'll do it again. If, if complaining about other people doesn't bother you, you'll continue to do it. 
In fact, I love, I love what Paul said in 1 Timothy. He talks about the grace. I'm just going to read this. I don't have this as a slide, but I want to read this. He goes, Paul's telling his young Timothy pastor this. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Oh, that's good. Of whom I am the worst. Hold on, Paul. Are you the worst? Are you the worst, worst? He goes, I'm the worst. And for this very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in time, the worst sinners, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe and receive eternal life. What Paul's saying is, I'm the worst sinner. Are you really, if we actually sat down and said, okay, Paul, yes, you approved of murder. You didn't actually throw the stone, right? You was headed to a town to arrest Christians, but you got saved on the way. So you're telling me that you're worse than Nero, who is killing Christians by the thousands? But see, I want you to think about this. What if you actually saw yourself in the same light that Paul saw himself? What if we actually said, you know what? I may not have been in prison, but I'm the worst of sinners. And if I really saw myself as the worst of all sinners because of all of my sin that put Jesus on the cross, that because of my sin, selfishness, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, because of my gossip, because of my critical spirit, because of my judgmental attitude, I put Jesus on the cross. I drove three nails. I put two nails into his hands and one into both of his feet. And I put a spear in his side and he died. And it was my fault. My sin. I'm the worst. And when you can look at ourselves, I'm the worst, how would you then begin to see other people? Would it change how you saw others? There is no petty sin. When we think of little sins, when we accept and we allow our mind to view some sins as little, I'm going to tell you how you know it happens. When the workplace when the school and when the church, when gossip and cynicism and critical spirits and judgmental attitudes and backslashing and backbiting and negative talk is happening, that's already happened. Because it's acceptable. Because we've already said, well, it's okay as long as you're not doing these things. We keep justifying sin and putting our stamp of approval on it. Eventually, you just stop making excuses for it and you just start doing it and you just don't care. The thing that most pastors tell me is, I say, well, you know, what's the, the sin that you see struggling in your church the most? Negative attitudes. Or I'll hear critical spirits. People only want to talk bad about others. Complaining. We got people who complain about the leadership all the time. We have gossip that anything that you could possibly hear is passed around to everybody. All of those things are things that the Word says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 will not inherit the kingdom of God. If gossip, if I'm a gossiper, 
and I can't be a gossiper and go to heaven, then why have I made gossip as if it's okay just because it's not murder? Hmm? Now, we're supposed to be talking about worship. What does this have to do with that? Everything. <laughs> Everything. This, their soul and what sin does to your soul has everything to do. If I am to love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, body, and with all of my soul, I want you to understand all sin involves idolatry. Because idolatry is, is when I have allowed a competing desire to have a higher priority than my desire for God. When my phone becomes a competing desire that I give more of my devotion to than I do to God, it is an idol and all idolatry is false worship. Woo! Losing my voice. <laughs> idols turn us away from freedom. And if you continue to follow idols, it becomes an addiction. Doesn't it? We've noticed. When idols are left unchecked, they become an addiction. That's why the average American spends three and a half hours on social media or TikTok or those dumb little video stuff. Three and a half hours. Three and a half hours times seven a day. That's 22, I think. And it's a part-time job, like I said last week. Am I giving 22 hours to God? <laughs> We're like, Ugh. Am I giving him five minutes? Am I giving him five minutes? So how do we fix it? That would be good, right? All right, so let's talk about that. There's two things I want to bring out. How do I fix this? How do I get out of this? The first thing is conviction. Conviction is from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will begin communicating with your spirit, which will tell your soul there's something wrong. Next week, hope you come back. Hope we're still friends after today. We'll see about the attendance. I'll count tomorrow, next week, and we'll see if, if I offended you too much. Next week, we're going to talk about spirits. How does our spirit, with the Spirit of God, how does that worship? I hope that you'll bring back the one song about the, um, this is the, the, the breath of the, the, you know what I'm saying. Okay, so because I'm going to talk about that next week. Um, but, but this week's about the soul. So what happens is the Holy Spirit speaks to my spirit, Telling my soul that I'm not right. That's conviction. Conviction is, is used to help me see that I'm wrong. The Holy Spirit's job. So the thing is, is this. My job is not to convict you. My job is to teach the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit. Now your spirit may be dead and ain't listening to no one. But that's not my job either because I'm not the Holy Spirit. Understand that my job is to teach the Word of God, and your, your job is to either receive it or reject it, but if you receive it, you're allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to your spirit, and if the Spirit is saying to your spirit, you're wrong, do something about it. Do something about it. Conviction. This is a God-given thing. Condemnation comes from hell. Conviction comes from God. Okay? Big difference. Don't have time. That's a whole other sermon. And I'm already 
past my 12 minutes. <laughs> Conviction is not just the pain of getting caught. Conviction is not just the pain of coming consequences. Conviction is true remorse of what I ought to feel. Not because I got caught, but because I sinned against God. And there are no little sins. Do you have a God-given ache for His goodness? I mean, like inside of you, does it just ache for God's goodness? Where when sin steps up and says, no, I love my God more than I love you. Sin, I don't love you, I love God. And I'm aching for His goodness. And I'm aching to be good for Him. Do you have an ache inside of you for goodness? Not because the Bible says so, or not just because somebody told you so, but because there's something in your soul that aches for God's goodness. The second thing is confession. <laughs> it's really good for the soul. <laughs> your soul finds healing through confession. And celebrate recovery, principle number four says confess your faults to God, yourself, and to someone you trust. There's a reason we usually like to hide all of our struggles in a closet and we keep them in the dark and they control you. The moment that you pull it out and you tell somebody else how messed up you are, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually worse than that. Because <laughs> guess what? We're all messed up, right? The moment that you open up that closet and you show what you've got in the closet, they're like, yeah, I've struggled with that too. And all of a sudden you realize that that thing in the closet was using shadows to make itself look bigger than what it really was. And the moment that I brought it into the light, it had no power over me anymore. I think we're so afraid of people knowing that we are messed up, that we hide that we're messed up when everyone else is messed up. <laughs> like, what's the big deal? I remember in, in college, we were often told not to, as a pastor, don't share your struggles. Like, <laughs> that's a lot of work. I, it's just a lot easier to say, guys, uh, I'm human, and uh, I've fallen short of the glory of God just like everybody else has. My marriage struggles just like everyone else's does. My kids drive me crazy just like everybody else's kids drive them crazy. My kids make me the worst person, the worst version of myself. I'm not even going to lie to you, but I love them. And they smell bad. So, <laughs> confession is really good. It's speaking these things out loud so they can't have a control over me anymore. So here's the thing is that when you start realizing there's some stuff inside of you, find someone. It doesn't have to be in a public setting. It, doesn't have, it could be in a small group if you find one that you trust. But it could be with someone. Someone that you really trust that you know cares about you and they're willing to hold you accountable so let me give you this last thing. Oh, I'm going to have the worship team go ahead and start making their way up here. But when the soul is whole, <laughs> my will is surrendered to God. My heart and my mind are surrendered to my will. My body is surrendered to my heart and my mind. And all of these are surrendered to my soul that is completely surrendered to God. That's what a whole soul looks like. When everything that I am is surrendered to God. And most people only surrender Sunday half of a day to God. 
and I'm about to encringe upon your time. You get what I'm saying though, right? God, I'll give you Sunday, uh, half of a day. I mean, I'm not going to do the whole thing. I mean, you know, but God, I'll, I'll give you maybe a little couple hours on a Wednesday night maybe. I might even come earlier on a Sunday morning to squeeze some extra time, some bonus points in there, some brownie points, you know. But the reality is, is that a lot of times we have stuff hidden in our basements, the deep parts of our heart that we're not giving back to God. There's some times that some, we've got some things in the attic that we're storing up there and we're saying, God, that's mine. You don't get to. Whatever happens in my room stays in my room, God. That's not your business. Well, that's not a complete surrendered body, is it? Or a, not a completely surrendered heart or a completely surrendered. You will spend your entire lifetime learning how to surrender more parts of you. So you might be sitting here saying, well, I haven't surrendered everything. Most of us haven't. And it's a it's like a daily process of learning. What have I not surrendered today? And then surrendering it. So my invitation to you is this. An invitation time is not all about confession to sin. And if you could bring those lights off, take those lights down, thank you. If an invitation is, is not about like, oh, everybody that goes forward is a sinner. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe, but... That's not what it's about. It's not just about, well, hey, I'm going to go lay my sin down. It may be. You may lay your sin down. But I also want you to know that the altar is so much more. It, you may realize there's a part of your life that you haven't surrendered to God and you just want to do it. God, I'm surrendering my heart to you. I know that there's parts of my heart that I haven't surrendered to you. Or maybe there's some things that I've been thinking about that I want to get rid of and I want to surrender my mind to you. Or there might, I might be surrendering my marriage to you today. Or, or, or God, there's some things in my life. Or maybe you might find yourself just, I just want to praise God. You can do that in your seat. But there's a lot of times, there's power when we put ourselves out there. There is something that, I don't know why, but there's so many churches that have gone away from having an altar or ever using it. And I'm telling you, if you've ever spent some time on your knees and some loving saint walks up and puts their hand on you and they're just praying for you, they don't even know your name, but they're praying for you. Not saying that special things can't happen where you're at, but I'm wanting you to know that Man, if God is nudging you, He might just want to see if you're willing to put one foot in front of the other. If you're willing to, to make yourself uncomfortable, to lay yourself down. The altar is a place for prayer. It's a place for praise. It's a prayer. It's a, it's a place for repentance. It's a place for you. And it's a place for me. So if... If you're coming to a point today and you feel God's nudging, you move only on His nudging, not mine. But if you feel God saying, hey, I want to meet you up there, then meet Him. But don't leave this place without responding to Him. I believe that every week we should be responding to Him in some way. What good is a sermon if it doesn't change something? What good was it to sit here for, for, you know, like two and a half hours listening to this guy up here? What good is that if it doesn't make any difference in our life at all? I would tell you that you're wasting your time. But I would say stop wasting your time and do something about it. 
Maybe you need to bow your head right where you are and say, God, I've ignored my soul. I've been ignoring it long enough and I'm not going to ignore it anymore. Maybe you need to do that right where you're sitting. But maybe, maybe there's some things that God says, I want to deal with some stuff in your heart or in your mind. The altar is open. If there's anyone who says, man, I need to give my life to God and I don't even know how to get saved. I'm going to stand here like I do every single week. And I'd love to introduce you to Jesus.